0: Michaela, from what I understand, you are going to tell me about what it is like to break into this business we call show.
1: Yeah, I guess. I'm going to tell you my story, although I feel like there's a million different ways that this works for people.
0: Welcome back to And Thereby Hangs a Tale, a podcast about interesting people and their tales. Your Crypt Keeper figure presenting these tales to you is me, Adam Clark, and my interesting guest is Michaela Dyke. Michaela's going to tell us about staging her one woman show, Dying Hard, and making it as an actor in Toronto. I think this is an inspiring story, actually. I trained as an actor myself, and let me tell you something the lifestyle is rough. Or at least, I wouldn't recommend it for those with various mental illnesses like this guy you're listening to. A lot of actors handle it better than me, I admit, since. I would feel brutalized by any bad audition. Like, this one audition I had, I'll never forget. Uh, I only got as far as one word. Hello. And believe me, I wish I could say I had them at hello, because who doesn't love a timely Jerry Maguire reference? I say hello, the director stops me and says, Say that again, but intimate. And I take two steps and lower my voice and I say, Hello. No, intimate, the director says. So I say, hello, and I waggle my eyebrows. Turns out the director just wanted me to whisper. Yeah, shame there's no exact one-word direction for that. Needless to say, I did not get that part. There's so much rejection if you want to be an actor, and when you have to commute two hours just to have the privilege of getting your 19th rejection that week, it's tough, and it becomes very easy to put your dreams aside. But Michaela never did. I'm going to put my Marin back in the box, and let's get to Michaela. Because this opening's gone on long enough, and if I don't put my Marin away, I'm going to ask Michaela who her guys are, and nobody wants that.
1: Ten years ago, I moved to Toronto from St. John's, Newfoundland. And when I moved, I had had something like five to ten years. No, more like five. Five to six years experience uh, working in theater and improv on the island of Newfoundland. And I moved to Toronto and found it very cold and uninviting. (laughs) (laughs) No! Not, Not that it is necessarily. I think that Toronto gets... It, Toronto has like a really weird shell around it. And once you crack yeah. through that shell, it can be really friendly and very kind, but <laughs>
0: you, you have your initial experience when you're moving up and yeah. it's discouraging. I mean, it's always going to be you know discouraging mm-hmm. when it, doesn't exactly line up uh with you know your hopes of maybe the first few auditions will be uh unproductive but you know it'll it'll, <laughs> More it'll like pick the up. first
1: 25
0: or 30 <laughs> yeah cuz like a lot of people get beat down by the realities of just how many auditions you are going to like there's a lot of no and a lot of what you might call failure, uh, depending on how you frame it, because, like, you're going in for things that you might not even have a chance of getting just because you're not what someone's idea of the part is or the, the part's yeah. already cast. Like, all of these kind of things. And, like, a lot of people get really, like, worn out before they've even really started.
1: <laughs> yeah. I don't I don't know if that was ever... Uh... I I found it tough, but I was actually trying to do theater and I found that a lot worse because I thought I had the experience that people would like look at and say, oh, you have experience in this, but because they weren't Toronto theater companies, people looked at my resume and said like, oh, we don't know these people. So we don't want to work with you. You're not like important to Toronto, (laughs) um, which is, which is (laughs) tough, but I, like I did, uh, I didn't mind. I didn't mind the auditioning so much. I, I do know that that's something that a lot of people have struggles with. But even in St. John's, I found, like, there was one time when somebody asked me in St. John's how I was getting all these theater roles there. And I was like, do you have any idea how many auditions I've done this year? <laughs> like, I've done, like, 70 auditions. That's wow. why I got these five roles, which wasn't – it doesn't sound like a lot. But in St. John's, like, it is. It's it's a big deal to get, like, more than one or two, I think.
0: Yes, absolutely. In a year.
1: Yeah, so I I found the same thing in Toronto. Like I was relentlessly auditioning. I was auditioning for everything and doing anything that I got cast in. Um, Definitely, I kept showing up to theater auditions, and people would look at my resume and look at the companies on the resume and just be like, "We don't know any of these names. Are you telling me you didn't go to theater school? All right, you can have your headshot back if you want. We know these are expensive."
0: <laughs>
1: like, <laughs> which was brutal uh, when you're first trying to like crack in. So, um, so I started doing film work when I first moved here.
0: Okay. Wait, was that comparatively easier to get into?
1: Yeah, because the student films, they don't know anyone. So they, they see your resume and they see that you've got experience acting and they're just like, sure, we'll cast you. You're not like somebody who's walked in off the street to come and audition for this, but there was a couple of websites where you could go. So I'd spend like two hours every morning submitting my like headshot and resume to just like every audition that I was even barely qualified for. It's like woman in her thirties, I'm 21, I'll apply. (laughs) Like (laughs) teen, I'll also apply for that. But, uh, and then I ended up getting cast in uh, a feature film. That was the first thing I had ever done in my entire life with the sole exception of like a, I did a weird uh, satirical news show while I was at college in the States for a year. But that was like self-filmed, self-edited. It was very bad. (laughs) I was applying to auditions on Craigslist. And then I got uh, an audition for this film, Sight Unseen, being produced by Zonial Pictures. Produced by um, the Turnbulls, who are a lovely family of people who do... uh, experimental film in toronto and they are also musicians okay so if anybody is familiar with uh, slim twig who is uh kind of uh, i don't know how to describe his music it's very cool it's like haunted rock he was the lead in this film it was the first red cam feature film shot in canada oh really yeah which was super cool um, to me because i'm i'm uh, like i do editing as well and i, I think cameras are interesting and the idea of like a digital camera that could shoot that big and that detailed was extremely cool but I got hired by them to play this part in this feature film and it was all these musicians and like music producers who were acting in tiny roles in it uh, including Gord Downey. Uh, It was a real formative experience. The movie itself was an amazing experience in my first time on film but also because the production manager Uh, Sarah Kim Turnbull, she came to me. I I ended up booking a tour on the fringe with someone else's show the summer immediately following. And then when I came back, uh, Sarah Kim approached me and was like, I think you're really good. What do you want to do for the next year of your life? And can I help you make that happen?
0: Whoa, that never happens.
1: That never happens. But I, I was like, while I was on tour, people were like, you should do a solo show. And that's how I got my start in a solo show. I, I had a producer believe in me and believe in the work I did and really push me to like, take control over what I was going to do with my career. Uh, and, and that's how Dying Hard happened, which was the solo show I ended up touring for seven years.
0: Did you have the germ of an idea or a, a, a real desire to like tour a solo show, or did you want to be like an, an actor in a company or or a working actor? Like, what were your goals at the time? Like, what did you envision yourself uh, doing with a desire to be uh, <laughs> part of like theater? Or was that all really vague? Of I'm just going to have this kind of like traveling, fun lifestyle think, of being an actor. I think
1: at the time I was like 22, 23 you know probably uh maybe a little bit older maybe like 24 at the outside but it was more that i wanted to earn money acting Mm. And I was willing to do it—theater, film, comedy. Like I, I had started doing standup around the same time because I was just trying everything. I was like, "What? What will someone pay me to do?" Please, <laughs> like I just, I just want to be in movies. Uh, I wanna, I wanna act on stage. I wanna have a career where I get to be other people. <laughs> <laughs> I had toured with a show called Reflections on Giving Birth to a Squid. Oh, okay. Um, which is written by David Levine. I still love that show. Uh Maya Rabinovich was the dramaturg and she like just did an amazing job with it and I got really good reviews. Like personally as an actor across Canada, I got really good reviews. Oh wow. And um other actors who were on tour, people who were doing um solo shows, they were like you should do a solo show. And I was like, I don't know, that sounds terrifying. (laughs) And they were like, we think you'd be really good at it. You should do it. And yeah, I just, that's what I'm like. I know how lucky I am. And I, I count myself like so fortunate that I just had people approach me at the right time to help me feel like I was doing a good job about this stuff. But that's that's what it was. I came back, and uh, Sarah Kim was like, you want to go see an improv show? And I was like, yeah, sure, there's this fun one. And we went out, and then after we went out, she was like, let me produce a show for you. Let me help you make a thing happen. I took a show home to Newfoundland to do the research for Dying Hard, mm-hmm. which was a book I had read. I picked it up on a sidewalk out of a box of books, and it's um, uh, verbatim it's like interviews with miners in the Buren Peninsula who all got like lung disease uh, after mining silica in the 70s <laughs> or in like the 30s through the 70s it's a big like part of Newfoundland history I think that's been overlooked um so I decided like I when I read the book I was like this would be amazing to see like as much as I love reading this I would love to see the people say these words. And then when she uh, asked me if I had an idea for a show, I was like, yeah, actually. <laughs> um, what if I did a solo show about this book? And then I don't know, I wrote, uh, Elliot Layton, who's the guy who compiled the interviews whose book it is. Yeah. And he was like, yeah, you can have the rights to do it for a show. He was very, very kind <laughs> and very approachable and I don't know. That that was my life then for seven years.
0: I want to get into that, I guess, just for uh, context, would you be able to summarize what the book, those interviews and the show is about?
1: the book is called Dying Hard. It was Elliot Layton in the seventies, went to the Buren peninsula where a number of miners and people who'd worked in these floor spar mines were dying, both from silicosis and lung cancer, um, because there was poor ventilation in the mines. And when you crack hard rock, uh, radon gas leaks out. So, uh, it's very tragic story. There's like 300 people or some odd died um, and it was most of the men in this community so he for his PhD project or or something along those lines he was like a young student when he did it Uh, he went out to and took interviews with these people who were from Newfoundland who all got the benefit of us joining Canada they in the 70s got settlements for you know, their husbands and stuff dying because of these industrial diseases. And so the show is that it's six characters talking about, you know, what it's like to know that you're going to die after a life that's like well-lived because you wanted to work. I think their stories are very strong. They have a lot of humor. They have a lot of perspective on who they are and why it happened. And whether or not they're happy or sad about it. And uh, I, I mean, like, uh, it had good audiences when I brought it places and I did it in that community. I think those stories really resonate with folks, the idea of facing your own mortality mm. and, and how you do it. Uh, for them, it's a little bit more clear cut. They know it's a little bit like sooner probably than most people. But that's, I think, a theme uh, everyone can kind of relate to.
0: Yeah, I, I wonder what it was like to... Kind of create this piece of theater then, and you're playing, you know, and having this world of all, all these people who who died tragically, and it's it's a real event. It's not that far into the past. Like how, like how did you feel about you know approaching that, and how did you go about making it?
1: I have a lot of complex feelings about it. Yeah, um, I had a feeling. <laughs> yeah. In in the forward to the book, Elliot Layton says something along the lines of, "It's one thing to." hear these stories and another thing to see the person telling you these stories. And when I read the book, it was very similar. Like it felt very like reading it. I was like, I just want to, I want to know who these people are. And when I approached him, he said, yeah, you can have the rights right away. Um, And then I approached Dahlia Katz to direct it. She is uh, an amazing director uh she's very into movement and physicality but midway through the rehearsal process i had a real crisis where i was just like i feel like maybe i'm using these stories it feels very self-indulgent like i'm i'm not here to do this for me so much as i am like interested in telling the stories of these people and i worry that that's getting lost and uh my director amazing woman that she is uh tore me an absolute new one <laughs> She was like, uh, "She was like, do you think I would get involved in a self-indulgent project? Do you think I would be interested in doing this if I didn't think that there was value in the actual stories?" And that kind of uh, that rung a bell for me really hard. I think it just brought me back to like, "Oh yeah, I guess I wanted to do this originally because I read these stories and found them very interesting."
0: the director basically pulled rank on you (laughs) yeah
1: which is you know what i knew that when i hired her i trusted her opinion i had a totally different idea for the show too i wanted it to be very theatrical and she was like no that's a dumb idea i was like all right well i hired you for a reason like sure i trust you
0: right they're preventing things from going badly and you can't see that because you're you have to be in the moment in order to act at all
1: yeah it's like you putting on a new pair of clothes and being like this doesn't make me look really stupid does it (laughs) like like and trusting a friend to tell you, like uh, if you are in fact, you know, wearing your dress tucked in your pantyhose or whatever
0: else. Like, do I look good with all of these shirts I'm wearing purchased from the It Store?
1: Yeah, the answer is no, never. <laughs> Come on, the It Store closed. We opened in London, Ontario. It was nerve wracking. Uh, doing a solo show is like it's an hour of talking on stage by yourself, no support. It's just you. If you mess up, that's it. And that was like, it's tough. It's like an endurance test. Then I got an offer from the arts and culture centers in Newfoundland to take it home. And like, I did it. (laughs) I did it in Marystown on, on the stage of their movie theater, which is about two feet deep. (laughs)
0: So there's like and no there's no theater space. You had to do it in a movie
1: theater? Yeah, I had to do it in a movie. Well, it was two hundred seats. They didn't have a two hundred seat theater. They uh, have like okay. a small fifty seat one. But because it's that community, people came out and uh I was doing workshops in the in the schools as well while I was touring with the Arts and Culture Centers. And I had met some kids who were like, That's my granddad, you know, that's my dad, uh, who you talked about in these things. Um And then I did the show and it was just uh, like, so wonderful and hard. Um, A lot of people were very thankful. A lot of people wanted to know what the rest of Canada was saying about their stories. And that was a nice thing to be able to bring, like to be able to be like, I perform this, people care. Like it's a story that resonates. Uh, There was a woman who was my technician in Winnipeg, whose parents, uh, she grew up in Elliott Lake. And there's uh, uh, toxic stuff. There's industrial disease problems there. And she she talked to me and her brother. We had a conversation about their issues with dealing with a corporation and, and how they got settlements. And I don't know. So it, the idea that like your story seems like it's just a Newfoundland story, but it resonates with people and, and, and people took a lot away from it and you know one woman came up and said my brother is is someone you talk about in the story you don't do him in the story you actually do my mom and she mentions my brother and she was like he couldn't come out because this is too tough for him and I'm like that's fair like yeah. that's I understand but I'm I'm glad you could come and I I hope your brother's well like and there was a guy who came who's got only a quarter of his lungs left, you know, like who's was in his like late sixties, who's still surviving. And I, yeah, I think that whole community went through a lot and being able to tell those stories and take that on tour meant a lot to me. And, and I, I bet everything I had on it too. I bet my like faith in my craft and, and, all the money I had earned at the time uh-huh. on this tour and just hoped I wasn't gonna fuck it up. <laughs> you know. And I and I didn't. I guess that's just it. It's like, but then performing it across country was eye-opening in that people would say, I never knew that part of Canadian history to me who weren't from there. But also people would show up to the show who worked in those mines. Like they were open until the mid-70s. So guys would show up with photo books. And say, this guy that you do in the show, I know he's got a different name, but that's him in this photo. I I think because I had met some people who'd worked at the mines while I was on tour in Canada, uh, that helped. Mm -hmm. That that was like a thing um, that helped me see like, no, they do appreciate those stories being told. I'm not and also like there's so little money like it's not like I'm like pulling in money hand over <laughs> fist i'm not a billionaire by any stretch of the imagination but like i i still was nervous when i was doing the tour of the island um that to me was like really the test of whether i had done the show right and i had already been touring it for like 2 years tuning it up over the fringe festivals mm-hmm but but taking it to marystown for sure absolutely was like harrowing in my brain just because I wasn't sure I wasn't sure if somebody was going to be really angry at me for doing it um and I still feel if there's somebody out there who's angry at me for for telling these stories they have a right to be angry at me like I I wouldn't turn away from that kind of uh uh fury if if anyone had it but no one did mm-hmm. and Um, most people were very, just grateful to know other people cared. And I, I believe in theater as a way to get people together in a room to share an experience and, and with the hope that everyone comes away talking and discussing or, or thinking about, you know, the same experience that they all had together. And, I like I just I believe that that's a powerful thing that we should do as communities regardless of whether it's theater or music or just like town halls and and so yeah the fear is always there every time I step out on stage I am always worried that people are going to be like that was really dumb and you should never do it again <laughs> like, <laughs> but but like that that can be in the back of your brain and you can still do it and be like yeah maybe it is really dumb maybe I should never do this again but I also I like doing it and and I like watching other people do it and I, I can't imagine there's no one out there who doesn't enjoy the thing I'm doing at this moment in time so that's you try and hold, I hold. you try and hold on to that I think more than anything else But then I did take it to the states. I took it to Orlando, Florida, once. Oh, um,
0: why why Orlando?
1: I met the general manager of the Fringe at the time. She was in Winnipeg helping promote a show that was from Orlando that was doing like the festival, the Fringe tour. And when I met her, she was like, your show you should bring down to Florida heads up. They don't really like dramas. They're more into like campy musicals, but we'll put you in a small room and you'll do great. I promise you. And she was right. I started the festival to four people in my audience and I entered it with a couple of great reviews and a full house, Oh wow! Uh, a full house of like 50, I should say. (laughs) Like it was a small, small, uh, space, but, uh, I got an offer to go to uh, Japan, but I couldn't take it because it was right. It ended up being right when the earthquake happened. Oh. Also, I don't know if the show would play. It is in Newfoundland accents. So like we had talked about it and I was like, I don't think this is the show to bring to Japan. Like I I don't think anyone will understand it. (laughs) Um, A lot of people find, we start the show with like a really heavy, heavy Southern Shore accent. Uh, It's an old man that I'm playing. So a lot of people don't understand it right off the top, but that was done on purpose. We kind of put the hardest accent first. Mm -hmm. And if you can't get it after like, everyone kind of gets it after a minute it's like your ear just like slowly tunes into what the actual sentences are he's he's the overture for the show and then there's five other characters that they are easier to understand generally uh, as the show goes on so i had some complaints across canada for doing newfoundland accents
0: which was weird wait what what kind of complaints would those be
1: uh, a woman in Ottawa walked out and told my volunteers that it was ridiculous that I was doing the show in a Newfoundland accent. She was like, why is she doing that? And they were like, <laughs> they hadn't seen the show. And they were just like ticket takers. And they were like, we're pretty sure the show is from Newfoundland. Like it's about Newfoundland. And she goes, oh, well, it's unnecessary. <laughs> uh, <laughs> it was weird. It was like someplace you go, Alberta, surprisingly very into the show. Uh, Ottawa was really nice. Edmonton did great. Uh, Saskatoon. Uh, Victoria was tough. Why? I got two blog reviews, not the main papers. They were quite kind, but the I got two blog reviews that came out first, and they were incredibly harsh. They were <laughs> like, why would anyone want to hear this story? Uh, it's not the fun, charming, jokey Newfoundland you've come to know so well. It's instead like of a boring story about mine people and Jeez. uh they said if you wanted to listen to a story about miners why not do one that would actually tug at your heartstrings and listen to this song about BC miners and i was like whoa buddies okay <laughs> however Okay. I found out about that review Mm -hmm. because I approached a lineup of people to flyer them. Yeah. And they were like, they surrounded me and they were like, we saw your show and we loved it. Don't listen to her. She's a mean, mean lady. And I was like, oh, (laughs) she's a mean lady. (laughs) So like Victoria was tough, but it wasn't like, because the people were quite kind. I just like, it was a, I had come off of being in edmonton where it was like sellout shows every night and then like just struggled in victoria to get an audience i was like oh god i'm going to the rainforest (laughs) but i don't know it was it was an eye-opening experience i think for me to see how the rest of canada really interacts with newfoundland stories as well I was originally working as an assistant chocolatier at a chocolate shop called Choco Cava in Toronto, mm-hmm. who were very good about me kind of leaving to go on tour the first time. And then the second time they were a little shitty about it. <laughs> and then the third time I was like, I'm not coming back. Kill me if I do. <laughs> well, like, Because they always needed people. They had a crazy amount of turnover. One of the owners was incredibly nice and just like the sweetest man on the planet. And that's why people, that's why like, I kept going back yeah. Yeah, uh, and then the other owner was just the world. He was so bad. He was just the worst person to work for. So it was just the third time I left. I was just like, no, this has to be it for me. So me and another guy who was touring with me, who did the same master's program at me as me, he's a journalist, and we started doing marketing for independent fringe tours. So I would do the graphic design for posters, and he would do the PR release and like uh, all the press. Uh, stuff for people so that was like a decent extra bit of income um you'd spend kind of like september through december doing uh your like applications and like figuring out if there's any other shows you could get on uh i would do like a couple of shows in toronto Nah, uh, what else would i do I I worked as like a barista for a little bit. I worked as a theater technician a couple of times. Like it was just kind of like whatever work was going would be the thing that filled in the gaps. That was enough to kind of hold me over. Plus I'm a spendthrift. So I made mostly like freezer food and Mm. ate a lot of oatmeal. Yeah. I just scrounged and scraped for a lot of it and saved my money that I had made on tour. Uh, I also sublit my apartment while I was on tour on the fringes. I feel like that's important. I wasn't paying Toronto rent. I was like living in my car yeah. or in, in the houses of the lovely volunteers for fringe. who put <laughs> artists up that they don't know. They're like, yeah, you can stay at my house and come home at 3am, you know, every night for two weeks, you're a stranger, but sure. <laughs> it's tough as well. Like, it's tough on your back. If you're me and you're sleeping on air mattresses, but I don't know, it's fun. There's like a community of touring people that really help you stay safe and sane while you're on the road. And and those people are a real treasure. They really help you uh, find the good diners that have the cheapest, best breakfasts. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know, I like, Doing that solo show really turned my life around. It was the first time I'd earned enough money to kind of say like I was making a living exclusively from performing
0: yeah.
1: and it happened because I like lucked into getting cast in this weird movie and then that producer took a shining to me and then I'd found this book on the street and then you know the guy that wrote it was really kind and my director, you know like you know smacked some sense into me but I wouldn't I wouldn't have any of it without people's support or or people's you know support of me or or what i do and i wouldn't have any of it without the stories of those people or you know the bravery they had to come out and talk about stuff and i i just i don't know it seems like a series of very kind coincidences combined with like a lot of hard work and and a whole
0: bunch of risk i guess i guess that's the cocktail for it in that like you do need to work hard to make it and, and get work as an actor, but you also are every bit as dependent on luck and the kindness of others. Like, if, there's no one thing.
1: Yeah, yeah, and that's the thing that really strikes me. I mean, I I try and help other people sometimes to my own detriment, <laughs> um,
0: <laughs> oh, but no like,
1: <laughs> I I really do try and pay it forward as much as I can in in my life because I like I'm well aware that I am not like a crazy success story. I'm not famous by any stretch of the imagination, but like I I do decently well. And I think that's most of what you can hope for out of a career in the arts. Yeah. Is that you do your best, you, you do work you try and be proud of. And then sometimes it's fun and silly and sometimes it's very serious. And, and both of those things can be rewarding in their own delicious, delicious ways. But... Mostly what it depends on is being kind to other people and doing the work to back it up.
0: Michaela Dyke, we're running out of time, but where can people find you online? Tell us. We need to know. You
1: can find me online on Twitter at Michaela Dyke. That's M I K A E L A D Y K E. You can find a fun web series I did at Good Morn Tonight, spelled exactly the way you would think it is, not the N I T, but the N I G H T style of night. Um, but if you want to find Good Morning Tonight on Facebook, it is Good Morn Night. Same thing, G O O D M O R N 2 N I G H T on Facebook, and all the videos are up there. They are very silly and very absurd.
0: And for our five <laughs> listeners who just haven't heard of the program, Michaela, what is Good Morning Tonight?
1: Good Morning Tonight is a web series about a post apocalyptic breakfast television show, sending you stories, interviews, everything you need to stay out of the riot. <laughs>
0: Thanks again to Michaela Dyke for telling her story on this month's And Thereby Hangs a Tale. If you want to see more of Michaela, why not go to our show notes at megaphonic.fm slash thereby slash ten. We're going to have links to Michaela Dyke's official site, as well as a link to where you can watch Sight Unseen, the film that she mentioned that got the ball rolling on her one-woman show, as well as a few reviews of Dying Heart itself. We're going to have them all there at megaphonic.fm slash thereby slash ten. Now, we're almost out of time, so let's find out who we have on the horn next month. Hello, my name is Beth. Whoa, your ears don't deceive you. You're not listening to It's Just a Show. Next month on Thereby Hangs a Tale, I'll be joined by my It's Just a Show co-host, Dr. Beth herself. She's going to tell us about giving birth, which Beth resisted because she didn't want to be a mom for a number of reasons. She's going to tell us about those reasons, as well as water births, the home birth movement, doulas, bad medical procedures, and why she's happy she's since had a kid. There's a lot of fascinating ground to cover, so come back next month. You better come back, or I'll find you. I'll crawl into your bed, and I'll bite your knees and laugh. And thereby hangs the tales of Megaphonic FM podcast. Megaphonic FM. Podcasts are the friends who live in your ears.